Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my summer series of Dr. Golly and the experts. I hope you survived Christmas Day and I hope your bellies are full, that you're looking forward to the new year and relaxing into the summer holidays. The second episode in this summer series is particularly close to my heart, as it's my own personal story, and I had the unique honour of interviewing my incredible wife, Elit. When our youngest child, Pia, was born, she came out looking different. Pia had a birth defect called craniosynostosis, but before we get into her condition and the major surgery required, I start by asking Elit to tell the story of how we first met. We met at school many, many years ago. We weren't friends. We just circled around each other. I knew your friends. You you knew mine. And many years after school, we probably officially met at a house party. And I turned to you. This is the story you told me. Um, I don't remember it, but you said I turned to you and I said, you never know what people are thinking. And that somehow left a strong impression on you and... From then on, we were close friends. And then you chased me and chased me. <laughs> and then things unfolded and we became... You could say that I wasn't exactly your type. I was When you envisaged who you were going to end up with, it was not... Uh... I, was, I loved our friendship. I just didn't want to marry you. <laughs> and I, I felt serious doctor nerdy vibes. And I was into the <laughs> blonde surfer, masculine motorbike situation. Um, and you were very convincing, but I just kept saying, no, thank you. <laughs> and it was the second you, you said you looked up at the sky and you said, I give up. If this is it, I, I give up. And the second you relinquished control, I kissed you. And I'm not sure why I kissed you. Well, the rest is history. History. Now, let's fast forward a few years and um, we get married and we have a beautiful baby girl by the name of Miller. Yep. Uh, a few years after that, we have a son by the name of Thomas. We um, have, during this time, we've lived interstate. I had to um, have a rural placement as part of my training in pediatrics. So we sort of, we travelled the world, we travelled Australia, <laughs> and then we ended up back in Melbourne. And you come from three kids, I come from three kids. We always sort of knew we would have a third child, but you didn't want to have a third child not straight right away. away. No. No. I wanted three, but not the way you wanted three. I wanted them. But everything is the way you want, really. <laughs> and Golly wants something, Golly makes it happen. So Olympia was a welcome surprise. Um, so how, how was the pregnancy with Pia compared to the pregnancy with Miller and Tom? I mean, so, nothing remarkable stands out. Same nausea, same tiredness. I wouldn't have noticed anything. And then fast forward to the point where she is about to arrive. The, the delivery, her birth, mm. was different to Miller's and Tom's. I had to go in. to book. Dennis wanted, my ob wanted to induce me. Um, and she was a pretty large baby. He thought she'd be big, but not that big. She was 4.1 kilo, really tall. And she was posterior, which we didn't know at the time. And that means, so when a baby's being born vaginally through the birth canal, they travel in a particular orientation. Um, yep. You know, they can either be facing up or facing down or sideways. They can be feet first. So when they're posterior, it's not a favorable way of coming out. It's, it's painful <laughs> as shit. <laughs> oh, this is the technical it's, term is not favorable. It's, yeah, it's, it's, she was a large child and she was 
facing the other way. She was doing things her way. Her way, which is 100%. She still does. Yes. Um, in true Olympia fashion. And she was born and came out and had a really unusual look about her initially. Um, which, which was dismissed. It was explained to me that she was posterior, she was large, she was squashed. There was still a seed of something's not sitting right. Before we get into her appearance, um, tell me how you chose, how we chose the name. Olympia? Yeah. We couldn't agree. Well, we struggled. We always struggled for girls' names. It took us weeks to name our well, first Thomas daughter. Had, Thomas, I had Boy, it was easy. Before I knew I had a son, <laughs> uh, it was Thomas, yeah. And then with our third, it was like we took weeks to choose our first girl's name. And then yeah. our next girl was like we, we couldn't decide. It was, it was weeks. Because choosing a name is a cycle. When one person gets into a name, by the time they're over the name, the next person's into the name. So I liked Saskia. Then I got over Saskia. And by the time I was over it, you were into it. Oh, I loved it. I liked Annika. We, we couldn't agree. So I'm hooked on Saskia and you are completely Annika all the way. So we, we couldn't decide. And you don't want to ask people's opinions because it just puts them in they an awkward... They anyway. Yeah, it, well, that's true. And so we decided that we were... I remember it just like I remember it like it was, it was yesterday. It was no, no, no. We, we, no, we were at home. Yeah, and that's when we flipped the coin. That's the, that's what I, the story I'm saying. We flipped the coin. Well, we named her in the rain under the bridge at Caulfield Racecourse in that flood on the way to Boxing Day sales by a bet. <laughs> so I decide I'm going to choose heads and it's going to be Saskia. Yes. And if it's tails, it's Annika. And we shook hands. We agreed that if the other person wins, we're just going to gracefully accept the other person's name choice. I was and- bullied, yes. <laughs> I was bullied. It was totally fair. I gave birth to a ginormous <laughs> monster who was posterior and I had to agree to name her something I didn't want to. Anyway, so you won the coin toss. We flip the coin. It lands. It's clearly heads. I win. And your response is? I can't even say. <laughs> she bursts out crying. I'm still upset. <laughs> so that was that's emotional blackmail. I couldn't choose Saskia. And then... We went back to our top 10 and I remember my friend Sam put Olympia in the mix and we both liked it. And we actually, she grew up next door to a girl whose name was Pia for short and her real name was Olympia. We both sort of said, we actually like the name Olympia. And you said, I'm not calling her Limpy. <laughs> so we said Pia and we agreed. And it stuck. And it suits her because she is, she is Olympic. She's Olympic. Her, stat, her stature and her nature and she's definitely not a small yeah. person. Though she is sassy. She is sassy. So let's move now to what we just briefly touched on before. When she was born, mm-hmm. when did you know that something was wrong? Immediately. How? She looked different. She had completely misshaped head and the bridge of her nose was scrunched in an unusual way. Didn't look like anything I'd seen before. I'd never seen that look on any of my other children. Because she behaved normally. She was doing, she was breathing she, normally, feeding normally, normal, everything yeah. was great. But she didn't look right. No. And we even had a pediatrician at the time because I never wanted to be my kid's pediatrician. So we brought a pediatrician in to examine and the comment was the same. No, nothing wrong. She was posterior. That will change. We, I mean, as a parent, you always have 
this seed inside you and you can't ignore that. So I knew and then we went to turning her head every sleep to seeing if it was just I'm sleeping in the wrong position. We knew, we knew. Yeah, that was my um, my <laughs> desire to not believe what my eyes were we telling knew. me. You know, a baby's head is very uh, moldable. So flat heads are really common and basically you can reposition a baby by changing the, the part that they sleep on for hours and hours every day and you can fashion a baby's head. And so her head was really long and narrow. Um, it had a the, pointy tip and her yeah. no, it sort of shifted all the way down to the tip of her nose and the bridge was almost squashed. Like a rhinoceros. We called her little baby rhino. Little baby rhino. What can you do? You, you have to laugh. She was very, um, she was a very feminine and strong baby, but she looked like a rhinoceros somehow. So I, um, uh, I had a colleague at the Royal Children's Hospital who's the head of the neurosurgery department, um, Virginia Meixner. She's a bit of a celebrity in medical circles. She was the neurosurgeon who separated the conjoined twins. And um, I was her resident during that time and we remained friends. So I sent her a text message of Olympia's head when she was born and her head two or three weeks later and said, um, Wurgie, what, like, what am I dealing with? What is this? And she wrote back um, just a few words and said, yes, I think you're going to be coming in. And that was when it hit me. When did it hit you? There were different hits. When she was born, something. Um, I'll never forget that Valentine's Day, the first time we saw Dr. Jonathan Burge in his rooms in Kew and when he gave us confirmation that that's what it was. And I remember like driving home with Pia, it was such a hot day, coming to my parents' house who had picked up the kids and she was screaming because she didn't get to sleep and we were waiting for the appointment. And I remember thinking my heart was broken on, on Valentine's Day. Um, and I just, that was another heartbreak. But it was a process. It was many different stages. And uh, you've got a newborn. You are still recovering from the pregnancy and the delivery, breastfeeding. You've got essentially two toddlers running around and you've got a husband with an extremely demanding job. I was often on call up in the middle of the night, um, away for long periods working. How did you juggle all of that and then handle such a hit? I just went into survival mode. I don't remember. It was a blur. I do remember. I do remember feeling lonely and feeling hopeless sometimes, thinking this was a sentence, a life sentence for her and for us, not knowing if she would ever be able to learn, hear what aesthetically her head, you know, might be like, if she would be able to understand. Once you're talking neurosurgery, there are so many risks. You read all these stories, you don't know. You don't know, you roll the dice. So my mind went into ca catastrophe mode. Um, and I sort of, I'm a bit of a control freak sometimes. So when I get um, insecure, I keep my kids really close to me. So my son, I think, went to daycare maybe eight times that year. I hardly sent him. My daughter went to kinder, but I, I kept everyone close because I just felt like I needed my kids. I didn't know what was happening. Um, and I did the thing you're not supposed to do. I joined Facebook support groups and I Googled and I Googled and I Googled and I found myself in a vortex of 
craziness and where should we go and who should operate and what method and it's a bit of an unusual condition in that way craniosynostosis so there are the skull of a newborn is very different to the skull of an older child and adult in that an adult has one bone that makes up the skull but a newborn has many it's a very common trivia question who's got more bones a baby or an adult and the answer is always a baby because of the skull yes, yeah. so there are pieces like pieces of a puzzle and they're intentionally made like that so that they can actually overlap and the size of the head gets smaller as it goes through the birth canal very clever design and then the gaps between the pieces of bone between the piece of puzzle eventually fuse together they're called sutures where sutures meet you have a gap that's called the fontanelle which most people will know as the soft spot on the top of a baby's head and with synostosis the fusion happens but it forgets to stop and so it keeps on fusing and it just keeps on bunching together and as you can imagine eventually distorts the shape of the head. So when it comes to correcting it, it's not a very straightforward thing. There's not like one operation set and done. Every case is slightly different. Every child is slightly different. And different countries, and even within countries, different operating centers have got completely different approaches to this. So that was something that I certainly struggled with because I, you went into survival mode i went into mr fix it mode and i just wanted to have her in the best hands and have it solved it's not something that you do straight away you want to do it as late as possible so they can be as big well, that, as possible that's debatable and, and that is debatable depending on where you go that's right so there's a bit of pressure so i felt pressure i felt time pressure let's go there they're saying time is critical let's do it at three months and then you say no melbourne method 10 months and and there's all these like you don't know what you're doing. You really and, don't. Yeah, and it's it's really um, it's really frustrating. You know, I speak to mums and dads all day, and they talk to me about how much inform. There's too much information too out much. there, and um, with this particular condition, um, there's almost a bit of competition between different groups that well, do these surgeries. They bag that method. That's they, right. Oh, this method is better, and and you know what? No one really writes about what happens many years later whether they have to re-op. That's right. So with the surgery, yeah. there are certain places in Sydney and in Adelaide that do a two-stage repair, and then Melbourne has a one-stage repair. And you, Spring method. That's right. You went into your lawyer mode. I wanted to research everything. I found the best method in Canada, actually. I wanted to call everybody that I could find that had had the method, and I, I had spoken to people. And then I wanted to find all the problems and where the risks were. And I started that process and then you turned to me one day and the house was a mess and everything was upside down and you said, you just need to be the mother. Let me figure out where she's going to have the surgery and by whom and I promise you it will be by the best people. She'll be in the best hands. And I, 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 I agreed. Because I, I couldn't do everything. It was all consuming. And that wasn't an easy thing for you to step back. No, to relinquish control was hard. Because I felt like if I did it my way, I would have more control and it would be better. But that's an illusion. And I accepted that. So it was months. It was 10 months until the operation actually happened. How did the, in the first few months, those crucial 
bonding months with Pia. How did all of this impact your connection with her? I don't think our connection was impacted by, I mean, the first 10 months of her life were spent, a lot of those days were spent at the children's hospital or at eye checkups or doctor's appointments. So there were, but we had moments, we still had beautiful moments. And to be fair, she was the youngest of three. So that was also busy. So we didn't have that luxury of time to just stare into each other's eyes. And we did do some play groups. But um, by and large, the first year of her life was pretty stressful. But it was always in the back of your mind, the knowledge that she had a problem and it became increasingly obvious because of her, the way her look was changing. Yes, yes. Yeah. How hard was that for you to be the mother of a child with a visibly obvious and hard. worsening deformity? It was hard. It was hard because I judged myself. I, I thought to myself, what are people going to think? She looks weird. And it must have been because I would judge people. Like, why would I think that if I didn't judge people? And I could see that people would look at me funny because she didn't look extreme, but she didn't look normal. She was kind of in that quasi, not sure what she looks like situation. And I've walked places and people would give me this unusual, like they're trying to figure out. And I, I would think the same thing. But I'm a sensitive person and I... I, I was on the other end and I felt judged and I felt like she was judged and she was a helpless, a helpless child. What could she do? I remember um, picking up our eldest daughter from kinder once and I would walk, and Pia would have been you know, eight or nine months at the time and I was holding her on my hip and I walked down the corridor to pick up our, our eldest and it was like Moses, you know, like the, the, the sea of people just splits as if you're carrying a, a grenade and, you know, I did people that a handful of times, but you did it every day. Yeah, people felt pity. Are oh, you okay? You just don't want to be on the receiving end of pity. Um, but I tell you what, we were surrounded by some extraordinary people, friends, teachers, community, family. They were really, really, really supportive. What, um, what impact do you think in those early days it had on our older kids, on Miller and Tom? Did they look at her differently? Did they treat her differently? No. Kids don't see that sort of stuff. Kids are very pure and they learn to become judgmental. They learn to assess people by how they look only later on, once they start school. Before that, they just accept. And, and, and when you put all of our worry and, and our thoughts aside, Pia was fun. She was a fun Pia, bub. Pia was always, since she was born, independent, fiery and feminine. It's like she didn't care. She didn't give two hoots about anything. <laughs> and she made everything, she did everything her way. She put her spit on everything. So we've covered the impact that it had on you and your relationship with Pia, your bonding, um, your relationship with your other kids. What about your relationship with me? I think we were both stressed out of our minds. We had, we had like a roller coaster that year. I would, I was, I'm an emotional person and you're more logical. So I'd be feeling something, I'd be down or I'd be stressed or whatever mood I was in and I'd try and get you to agree with me, but you'd be in fix-it mode. Um, and then we had some arguments, I would say, 
I tried to blame me or blame you. I felt so helpless. I was trying to blame someone. How did this happen? I'm healthy. You're healthy. It's never happened before. It's not in our family. It was a grief process. It was a cycle for me. Um, and that you we were, were more give, consistent. We were given the option to do some genetic testing. Oh, no, I, I pushed for that. That wasn't an option. <laughs> I, I, I made that happen because I, I wanted to know why did this happen? Do I carry a gene? Do you carry a gene? Are our kids carrying a gene? If they have kids one day, are they going to have that gene? But why, why does it matter? Because I like to know. I like to know because if in the future our kids want to have kids and they carry a gene, it's worth knowing because maybe they'll partner with someone who also has that gene and it increases the likelihood. What for? You know, in, in medicine, and I think this is my personality type even prior to becoming a doctor, Definitely you is. you only test when you need. You only test when the result is going to change the outcome. So if you don't feel tired and you don't look pale, don't do a blood test to look at your iron levels to see if you're anemic because it's just there's no indication, there's no reason to do it. And if someone, I mean, I don't know what example to give at the moment, but if the result of your test is not going to change the outcome, don't do the test. What's the point? Just because there's information that you can know if it's useless to know it, don't well, test. Well, we, we hadn't – I was in such an unstable spot. I was such a wreck. I just wanted to know maybe we were going to have more kids in the future, maybe not. We, we, we weren't thinking clearly. I was just very – I want to know how this happened. And to be fair, I went into blaming mode. Was it congenital? Was it de novo? Was it inherited from somewhere? I wanted to know. Why did you blame yourself? Because – I felt that this poor child was born into this world and had to endure so much pain and testing and people tugging and pulling at her and she had done nothing wrong. And I felt that some, someone had to be accountable. Someone had to take responsibility for that. And I felt guilty. Let's move now towards the lead up to surgery. Now, this is not a simple thing, as we mentioned earlier, and there's a team around. Like, Pia needed an eye specialist, she needed an anaesthetist, she needed a neurosurgeon, she needed a craniofacial surgeon. There was, we even had a cardiologist involved. There were so many people involved in the preparation for surgery. Um, then it came, and in actual fact, it came weeks earlier than we thought it would because we, I remember I was at work. I got a cancellation. That's right. I got a phone call saying, hey, do you want to do it tomorrow? It and was like that. That was, that was hard. No, it was so easy. It was easy for you. We hadn't slept. Yeah. In the lead up to the operation, we weren't sleeping for months. I yeah. remember asking your brother, can you give me something? I haven't slept in two weeks and I can't see straight. Yeah, my brother's an anaesthetist and puts people to sleep for a he living. Said me, he said to me, go meditate. And I wanted to push him off <laughs> a bridge because it was so past that point and I meditate. But it was just that looming operation. And once they said we can go in earlier, I was like, go. We, we, we're, we're so geared. Let's go for it. Um, and that was a relief. And the day, I mean, Wow. <laughs> I remember longest every minute. I, it was the longest day ever. And ever. I remember every single 
minute. It started early. It started really early because you've got to go to the hospital. She can't eat. She can't That's eat. right. And you go and check in and, and, oh, that room. There's a room at the Royal Children's Hospital oh, where geez. everyone goes before surgery and you just look around thinking, wow, there are other people going through this. You know, one kid might be having grommets done, but one kid might be having a bloody heart transplant. Like it's it's... It's really intense. And the kids, and it's pitch black outside and you're all sitting there, no one's eaten or drunk and and everyone's nervous and everyone's just wanting to move. And and I remember, so Jonathan Burge was the, uh, the like the captain. He, he was steering the ship of this big team. Um, Jonathan Burge has become a, a really good friend. He's a, this guy's an absolute magician. Angel. He's a f- phenomenal human, um, an incredible operator and just warm so warm so empathic you know it was one you you know you sometimes come across a doctor where such a gentleman a gentleman and you're so happy to just give the life of your child in this person's hands and just say i completely trust you and i remember i was so comfortable with him and i was so not excited but i was i was really at ease comfortable with the choice that we made to have him look after pia and I remember he comes into that room, a little cubicle, and they do a few checks and they put her in the hospital gown. And he walked in and it looked like he hadn't slept for a week. This is a guy. You were oh, man. You this is a me. guy. He, he looks good all the time. He's very smooth, you know, uh, well dressed, impeccable, that. good hair. <laughs> and he walked in and I looked at him and I said, Mate. What happened? Yeah. Were you on call last night? You're not operating on my daughter. We're talking like an eight-hour operation. You're not touching my daughter if you haven't slept. And he said, no, no, I wasn't on call. Just my my girl was up all night long. She hasn't been well. And I'm thinking, where was she? I said, I literally said to him, yeah, I I said, Jonathan, uh, do we need to postpone? I'm I'm okay with that. I'll go home right now. We'll, we'll, We'll do this again in a few weeks' time. And he turned to me and he said, when that scalpel enters, is given to me in my hand, it doesn't matter if I haven't slept for a week. I go into a mode, a zone, and he turned to me, put his hand on my shoulder, and he said, everything will be all right. Then we moved to another room and another room and this corridor, and eventually, yeah, yeah we, um, we met with the anaesthetist. Um, and, you know... For those who don't know, this is a place where I worked every day. Um, I knew these guys. I walked these corridors. But being on the other end is so, so surreal. And that's not where humbling. I'm meant to be. Really humbling. Really humbling. And um, they give you a choice. Do you remember they gave you a choice about when you want to leave her? Do you want to be with her when they give her the yeah, anesthetic I gas? I said yes. And, yeah, you wanted to. And I remember looking at you. Um, behind your shoulder and you you had her head in both of your hands and you were right up close, yeah, uh, when they put the mask onto her and she drifted off to sleep. And then tell, tell everyone the story of that day because we gave her up and then you you get a phone call eight hours later. They said to us, just go. Go do your thing and we're going to call you when it's done. Could range between six to eight hours later. And we just didn't know what to do with ourselves. You wanted to see a movie. You wanted to stay and wait in the hospital. Yeah, I did. 
I was so sh- I had shut down so much. I didn't. I couldn't do anything. And you, you were like, "No, nah, we need to distract ourselves. Oh, need to get out." Yeah. And 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 it was also like it actually, in retrospect, ended up being a really beautiful day for you and I. It was. We, the focus was elsewhere, of course. But yeah. Like when do we, well, we as parents of three, get to have a day yes, in Melbourne <laughs> City? It's like a yes day for parents. We had, we had like ouzo for lunch or something. We, we did. Want... We had a drink. Yeah. It was like we, we had, have to have a, have a drink. drink. I said, I can't drink. <laughs> we said, you have to drink. We saw a movie, we which I love eat. to do. Yeah. We, um... I went to the hairdresser. <laughs> I went to this weird hairdresser in Melbourne Central to get my hair washed because I hadn't washed my hair in so long. No self-care. No self-care. I looked like I just rolled out of a dumpster. But it actually ended up being a beautiful day. Yeah. And then um, I remember where, where, when we got the phone call and they said... Um, we raced. They said, don't rush. Don't yeah. rush. We finished. No, no, no. We, there were two phone calls, right? Because the surgery is a two-stage thing. Um, and what they do is they cut, they, they make an incision from ear to ear. So Pia's first haircut was performed by a neurosurgeon, which I love to tell people. (laughs) And uh, yeah, they cut from ear to ear and they do a zigzag line. They don't do a straight line. And they do that so that in the future, these kids won't have a very visible scar and the hair sort of will ultimately cover it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so the first part of the surgery is done by a neurosurgeon. And the reason being that they make that cut and then I'm sorry for the visual, but they, they fold all of the skin, including, you know, all the way down to the eyes, they fold it forward and then they do the same at the back and they basically uncover. It's like taking the top half of a hard-boiled egg off. They just take it, take the skin down and then what you're looking at is skull, just bone. And Jonathan took photos of the whole thing and showed me, yeah, we have them and they're, they're so confronting. I still look at them sometimes because they don't look human. They don't look real. They look like a, a bad horror movie, mm. visual effects. Mm. Then what happens is Jonathan walks in and he takes a texter, a pen, and he draws all over this misshapen problematic skull. And what he's doing is he's drawing puzzle pieces. Then the neurosurgeon, Alison Ray, Again, who I worked with and just... Amazing woman. Oh, another phenomenal... I mean, I can't speak more highly of these people, but Alison Ray is like an absolute... A hero is not enough of a word. And she then removes the skull. It just comes off in pieces. And the removal is really, really delicate because you have to... Take it off, but you can't disturb the underlying brain. Correct. And you have to separate layers and eventually they take off this one piece of skull and they put it on, on a table. And then Alison leaves and she just checks out. She goes and has lunch. She probably does another couple of insanely yes. amazing surgeries. And we got a phone call from Jonathan saying, yeah, Alison's done. I'm going to step in now. And I'm just thinking... You're calling Where me. Where is my daughter? At, yeah, where's my daughter with her brain exposed Lucky. sitting in an operating theatre? Shocking. He then goes and sits at this table like he's sitting down, you know, doing a puzzle, literally, cuts it into X many pieces, rearranges it, 
It's mind-boggling. Did you have a sense for what was actually technically happening to your daughter? I just felt guilty. I thought, how can I let my daughter lie on a table and have, have them do this to her, even though they're the best in their field and they are amazing and they're helping her? I just kept thinking from her perspective. She's got a mask on, you put her to sleep, maybe she can feel something, maybe subconsciously she's going to carry trauma. What, what am I doing? You never know if you're doing the right thing. You never know. Um, and you just do the best you can. And she came out of the surgery. And Jonathan warned us about something beforehand. Do you remember what that was? She's going to look different. He said, you may not recognize your own child. We, we didn't care. We just wanted the box. He kept saying, we want the box to be big enough for the brain to grow. Yeah. We didn't want any You don't pressure. want brain damage. No, you don't want brain damage and pressure in the brain. But I didn't understand well, what can't. he meant you by can't. you won't recognize. I didn't get it. How can you not recognize your own child? That's absurd. I never, I never understood well, you get that. you used to looking at someone for so long. That you yeah. She looked different, but it, that didn't blow my mind that she looked that different. I, yeah. I couldn't believe. You couldn't believe? Oh, I couldn't believe. Because I'd seen, um, I, I had a colleague who, whose child had it um, a few months early, maybe a year early, and he showed me a couple of photos. So I knew what to expect with the scar. But when I saw her, her face looking up. perfect, like, I mean, I always thought she was perfect, but she looked visually normal Symmetrical. for the first time in 10 months in her life. And I remember thinking, they've done it. They've actually done it. I didn't think it was possible. What went through your mind? I remember you were the first one to hold her when she woke up. Like I said, when I go into survival, I just want to hold them close, the kids. I feel like, come to me, protection mode. I just wanted to feed her. And she was bottle fed at that stage. Um, your milk dried up. It stopped earlier, uh, yeah, at three or four three months. Three or four months, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, having breastfed Miller until she was what? Past one. Yeah. Both of them. 14 months, 12. You just wanted to feed her. I just wanted to hold her and feed her. And she was, she just, when a child comes out of surgery, it's one of the most hard things for me to see. Because you know they've just been through a massive journey and their body still acclimatizing to get an aesthetic out of them. They don't know what's going on and and you feel like you just want to help them. Um, and we gave her a bottle and we sat with her. And I, who spent, you spent the first night because we had to tag team because the kid's at home. And I wanted to stay and you said, no, I'm staying the first night. I didn't want you to have to go through that because that first night's always the hardest. I didn't know. I just wanted to be next to her. And yeah. You were quite firm. You said, no, yeah. I'm staying here. There are. Um, I didn't that, know what I didn't know. Yes. And that's the catastrophizer in me. So, I mean, I'd spent years and years in that hospital dealing with problems in post operative patients. Problems happen, just bad things just happen sometimes. And. I mean, I can't tell you how many night shifts I've done where you've got to run to someone who's had some surgery and this has happened and that has happened because when, when the surgeries happen, it's all so controlled and then when you take all those supports away, you just kind of... The body does you, its own thing. Exactly. And if there's a bleed, 
there's a bleed and if there's a problem, you just don't know until later. So I kept all of that inside and there was so much that I didn't tell you and so much that could happen that I never, ever wanted you to hear, never wanted you to know as some sort of protective I went mechanism. I didn't sleep a wink. I think I was texting you all night. Um, and you said it was a hard night. It was a hard night. That first night was hard for all the obvious reasons. Your child is a bit in and out of it. They're awake, then asleep, and there's no routine. Um, you know, she couldn't eat solids, which she really loved, and she's uncomfortable. You know, you, you don't, as a parent, you don't sleep. You don't sleep that first night. I knew Other kids at home that you're worried about. Exactly. How are they affected? I was worried about you. And then... I remember when just towards the end of the evening, you were still there with me and I could see out the corner of my eye, her heart rate started to just me, go up. Yeah, I, I could see it and I was so torn because I did not want to tell you and you said, why, what does that mean? And I said, uh, it's okay. <laughs> I think you should go home. And then I, I got you out of there basically. And, um, and I started to worry because... Fast heart rate can mean a whole lot of things, um, but I was worried that she was in pain and she couldn't tell us. And I was also worried that she had lost a lot of blood from the operation and maybe she needed some more fluid through her, her IV, her intravenous drip. So I just got a bit panicky and I remember calling, asking the nurse to call for a, a medical review, which is what happens when a patient's doing something you're not sure. The nurses call the doctor who comes and reviews a patient. And I'm sitting there and this, <laughs> I mean, I'm a consultant at the hospital and a junior doctor walks in and you could see she was completely terrified. And I like, imagine walking in and one of your bosses is there and your boss is saying, can you please advise on my baby? I mean, this poor doctor, she was so good. And she was so sweet and she did everything by the book and she was lovely, but she was terrified. Yeah. And eventually um, it, what I wanted to happen wasn't happening. And I sort of um, I didn't pull rank. I just pulled strings and I got someone more senior to come and we sorted it out and she ended up being fine. Um, and I guess I was a bit like you. All I wanted to do was to feed her. So I just kept on giving her more and more bottles of milk and she kept on drinking. <laughs> and then at one point, which I should have known, um, her stomach was just not working. It just, it takes a few hours, sometimes a day for the gut and the bowel to start moving again. But I was just pouring milk into her and then she just spewed everywhere. She just hosed milk. I, it hosed out of her. And I remember slamming my hand on the emergency buzzer on the wall. This is not an emergency, right? But for me... You're covered in milk. I was covered and I was holding her because I didn't want it to go on her and I definitely didn't want it to go near her scar. And when you hit the emergency buzzer, like... Everyone floods <laughs> the room. 25 nurses and doctors, everyone runs in. What's wrong? And I turned around. She vomited. <laughs> You're like, oh, it's nothing. <laughs> it just wasn't a big deal. But I remember thinking, it's a big deal because it's my daughter. She can't be uncomfortable. She can't have pain. She can't be tachycardic. She can't vomit. She, this can't happen to her. I came in on the second night, didn't sleep a wink again. 
pretty much watched her on that couch. And I didn't even tell you half of the things that happened happened that night. I don't know. I didn't ever want you to know because I knew the way you'd think. Look, it was a rough, it was a rough bit. And, And talking of her appearance... Oh, she said it's a swell. Yeah. So that was, that we knew was coming and they swell in their skull so much that their eyes swell shut and her swelling, which started at the top of her head and and went all the way down to her neck and the bruising, she basically became blind. She couldn't see. And yeah, I remember walking her around in her pusher. She just, she couldn't see anything and... um. You know, the one feeling, I've never actually told you this, but the one feeling that I had, which was an overwhelming feeling, I was so proud. She never, ever complained. She had like Panadol on day two. That was it. Nothing, I was so, and I thought to myself, there's no way I could go through what you just went through. And you're not even one. I was so proud. You know, you know when your child wins a race, like your child wins an Olympic medal, you think, oh, like I am so proud of you. That's how I felt. She's Olympic. Yeah. She, she really is. She always had elegance and grace and she was always courageous since she was little. It wasn't because of the surgery and it wasn't because of all the appointments. It just is her. So now Pia is six years old. Tell me about her today. Olympia is independent. She's kind. She's loved. She's interested and interesting. Very social, extroverted nature. Loves to dance and shake her booty. Loves gymnastics. (laughs) Loves colour. An aesthete. Loves putting things together. Looks, drawings, place settings. Loves Visual, um, very complimentary. If someone looks beautiful, she's the first to say, I love your hair, I love your eyelashes, I love your fingernails. Um, and she's very resourceful. She teaches herself things. And I was that was my biggest concern, that she wouldn't be able to learn, to read, to talk, to comprehend things. So... We know now that Pia is only stronger because of it, or maybe she was stronger before it. I think she was strong to begin with. Maybe she's become stronger. So you know that saying, I'm not going to put it, oh. the words right, you know, your children are your best teachers. Yes. They, they, They're our teachers. And they are the ones who bring us the challenges that we need the most in order to grow. What did Pia change in you? to find perfection in imperfection and to let go of control, which I was so, I was clinging so tightly to control for some reason. wanted everything to go according to a plan. And she just came like a whirlwind and just showed me that there's so many different ways to do life. So how were you different before Pia and now? She's allowed me to grow not according to the mainstream way. She's not mainstream. She's very, she sees the world differently. She finds a lot of beauty in things that I wouldn't ordinarily look at. Whether walking somewhere, she'll stop and find beauty and joy in something. 
And I used to be more like that. I think I became a lot more serious as I got older. And she doesn't take herself seriously or anything. You could yell one centimetre close to her face and be serious and she could burst out laughing in your face as I, to I, say, I've <laughs> got perspective. I don't know what you're so serious about, but I've got perspective. And she just, she gets it. She really understands what's important and when to tolerate and not to tolerate things. I um, love when it, it's you or me trying to discipline her and she... You're more serious than me. It's so worked I, up. But she breaks me. She like she Black look, eyes, <laughs> dead set in your face. And then she starts smirking. And she's like, are you serious? Just back flip in your face. Yeah, don't even bother. <laughs> yeah, girlfriend. Yas, queen. What does she say now? Yeah. Every time you ask her to do something, yas, queen. <laughs> she really, she doesn't take things seriously. And she, she is such a mother figure. I mean, a friend of mine texted me the other day saying, Pia was carrying one of the girls from her class in the corridor and then put her on her lap. She's a very motherly, nurturing character. She's tall. She's caring. She's athletic. She's girly. She's feisty. She does not take orders from anybody. And, um, and she's fearless. She always says, I'm not scared of anything. And I thought she'd come out of this and have trauma and fear. And she said for years, she's always said, when we used to read her books about being a princess, she used to turn to me and say, I'm a queen. She couldn't say queen. I'm a queen. And I used to say, no, you're a princess. No. I'm a queen. She's very definite. Um, she just, she's got such inner confidence and she knows who she is and she's not ashamed. She owns herself. And that's a big, a big lesson for me. I thought I was confident before, but this is a whole new level of truly confident in not being mainstream. Not that she's so odd, but she embraces things in a really, really wonderful way. She taught me that. There's no question. What do, you, what do you feel? She taught me similar things that the need to just relinquish control, whether you're relinquishing to a doctor or you're relinquishing to the universe or God or whoever you believe in. She taught me everything that I've ever done has always been planned, arranged, organized, um, well thought out. And she, like you said, she, she was a hurricane. She just came around and said, no, nah, um, I'm going to do it my way and you're going to come and join me on my journey. It's not like I'm going to slot into your world. I'm going to change your world. And when I look at her now, you know, she doesn't have a perfect head shape and she has a huge scar and she just owns it. She, and she's magnetic. Yeah. Because she owns it and her nature combined, she's magnetic. She draws people to her, um, which is quite incredible to think we were so petrified. And, and it could change again. You don't know as a parent. You never know. Things just keep changing. We're organic beings. We keep moving and changing. And I think I still am petrified. I mean, you always roll your eyes because every single time we, we, we meet a new teacher, and we have a parent-teacher interview, I bring it up and I talk about how, you know, we've, we've got to be conscious of this. <laughs> and, 
She's plateauing, <laughs> has her development. But also, like, I don't want anyone teasing her and I want to know if she's uncomfortable. And the joke's on me because she is so strong and so capable and so but she... It could change. It could change. Of course. But right now, she is incredible. She is incredible. Looking back, because we've, we've actually never done this. We've never really spoken no. about this journey. No. It's very strange feeling. But when you talk about it, when you look back upon it, is there anything that you would do differently? Always say to a parent, trust your gut. Even though I knew something was off and I was, I was so conflicted between head and heart, I would say trust your gut in anything in life. Whether you feel like this is not the right fit for your child or something's up, just go with your gut until you feel your gut is at ease. And if you were introduced to someone who received the diagnosis that their child had craniosynostosis just yesterday, what, what would you tell them? I'd hug them. I feel like it's a very, I remember you were in fix-it mode and I remember just feeling like I wanted someone to hold me, not to fix it. You can't fix it. She is what she is and it's going to be what it's going to be. I feel like I just, I'd want to hug someone and say, trust that it will work out exactly as it's supposed to. Just trust. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the experts wherever you listen. For any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. Just before you go, I have a quick favour to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear the incredible stories of my phenomenal guests. Thank you.